The advice that I would give people is don't sell yourself short. If the opportunity comes to you and you feel ready and you feel like that's something you might enjoy doing, you got to take it. Those doors don't open themselves to you very often. There are those people who are consummate entrepreneurs who make that reality happen. But I think for most of us, the opportunity sort of comes at a certain point of time and you have to be ready to take it. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thangin. So let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I'm really excited in this episode of the podcast to have Sarah Moon. She's the co-founder at Fieldworks Power. They're a community solar developer. I've known Sarah since she was before at uh, DSD, Distributed Solar Development. And then you also worked at Solstice. And obviously, I know the two founders of Solstice very well. Actually, Steph has been interviewed on the podcast. And Sarah is a listener of the Solar Maverick podcast. And I'm really excited because I think Sarah could bring a lot of great insights of what's happening in the U.S. community solar market, but also with her new endeavor with Fieldworks. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Benoit. I'm really Really excited to be here. Like you said, I've been a longtime listener and fan of the Solar Maverick podcast. It was super exciting when we got a chance to meet in person at not this past year's already, but two years ago. So I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, I can't believe it's already last year in September when we first met in Anaheim and then actually in January in San Diego for the Community Solar Conference. We were at Power Markets event. I think it was Ocean Beast. It's just amazing too. That was like nine months ago, but it's just amazing how quickly time flies by, especially in the solar industry where everything's always in flux. Can you talk about in more detail, like you started a company really recently with the co-founder. Can you talk more about what you're doing at Fieldworks? Yeah, I would love to. So like you said, I just started Fieldworks Power in the past couple of months, actually, with my co-founder, John Morton. We are Fieldworks Power is a solar development company specifically focused on entering and shaping new community solar markets across the U.S. So our core work, what we're trying to do at Fieldworks Power is to develop portfolios of projects in states that don't currently have community solar programs at all or effective community solar programs. And alongside that development work, invest in policy and the creation of new or expansion of new community solar programs that can really deliver substantial value to communities through third-party investment in a way that would make the program really, really work. That's pretty amazing to hear about Fieldworks. And you know what I was thinking? Like, you're probably one of the few people who have a lot of community solar experience. I mean, now solar is in 23 states. You work for a customer acquisition company for community solar at Solstice, then DSD developed community solar, but then they also, you know, finance other developers' community solar projects. And now you've gone on with John and he's also worked with you at DSD to start this. I mean, that's pretty impressive when I think about it, like the background that both of you have and you complement each other really well. Can you talk about as a co-founder, how you and John are a great match? And, you know, I think that would be really interesting because obviously whenever you start a company, it's really important, like who the team is and the co-founder and kind of wanted to know, like, how did you, you know, decide that for Fieldworks, like that you guys were going to partner together? Yeah, it's a great question. And I feel really lucky to have found a partner like John Morton. He and I worked, you know, we met at DSD Renewables when we were working there together. 
trying to build DSD's community solar operation. So to your point, I mean, DSD Renewables is a fantastic company and they get their projects through a couple of different channels or opportunities. The majority of DSD's community solar projects come through their sort of M&A department where they're buying projects from other solar developers who have gotten the project to a point of maturity where it's ready to sort of build construction. And that's where DSD comes in as the EPC and operator of those community solar projects for the long term. So John led their M&A business overall, which didn't involve just community solar projects. And I came in and was hired by DSD specifically to really run their community solar business as a whole and make sure that we had subscribers, we had, you know, revenue secured, we understood what markets were going to provide new opportunities for DSD to sort of enter and expand their community solar, you know, projects and portfolio. And the two of us had a ton of fun, A, working together, which I think is really important when you're sort of going into the trenches and starting a company together. But we also, I think to your point, had really complementing skill sets. I had sort of the revenue side, the understanding of like the subscription piece of community solar. I had a lot of experience seeing how these markets came into place. And I also had experience, you know, sort of on the financing side of community solar and understanding what really makes these projects a valuable asset for long-term owners and operators. And John has a lot of experience. I mean, he's been in the industry, the solar industry in general, and the renewable and energy industry for a really long time. He sort of brought that development experience and the deep understanding of, you know, how to get a project to a point where it's valuable and ready to be built. And so I think those complementing skill sets, the fact that we work together well from a personality standpoint, you know, and the sort of the drive that both of us had and the interest that we had in continuing to grow and build something. We had sort of done that together at DSD. And we at DSD, the community solar portfolio that they had and the sort of business that we'd established and helped to set up was sort of in, you know, maintenance mode. It wasn't necessarily in that early stage of building something from the ground up anymore. And I think both of us were hungry and looking for that at the same time. So that's sort of how we came together and why I think we work so well together. Yeah, that's great. It's all about finding, you know, complementary pieces because obviously not everyone has the deep backgrounds and different things and you complement each other well. And also from a timing perspective, obviously uh, with the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, it creates a lot of certainty. Now we have 23 states that have community solar. Can you talk about, you know, what states or what markets Fieldworks Energy is focused on developing projects? Yes. And you might have to stop me because I could talk about what's exciting in these <laughs> markets literally for hours. So Fieldworks Power, primarily we're focused on some new opportunities for community solar markets in the Midwest. But we're also, beyond the Midwest, we're also really excited about the potential of a new community solar market in California. So I'll start there, and then maybe I'll circle back to some of those Midwestern states that we're really excited about. But I'm a native Californian. I know you're a part-time Californian, Benoit, maybe future full-time <laughs> Californian. It's a great state, and one of the most amazing things about California is what they've been able to accomplish from an energy and renewable energy perspective. But I think something that's surprising for a lot of people about California is they're actually really behind 
in terms of the community solar programs that they've stood up. So California has a couple of community solar programs in place today or programs that are called community solar, but don't really work in the same way that some of the more successful community solar programs do. And so there's an opportunity in front of California right now to stand up a new, truly workable and scalable community solar program. And this opportunity was created by the passage of a bill called AB 2316, which basically directed the PUC, the California Public Utilities Commission, to look at the existing program and see if they were effective. And if not, you know, make a determination to establish a new community solar program that did work. And since the passage of that legislation late last summer, we've been entered into and have been a part of a PUC proceeding that's taken place over the last year or so. And tons of testimonies been submitted by all kinds of different stakeholders from everyone from environmental justice advocates to ratepayer advocates to utilities to developers. The Coalition for Community Solar Access has been a really important voice, as has SIA. And I think you know, that testimony that's been presented through the proceeding has made a rock solid case for why a new community solar program is needed in California. And a few features of that community solar program that I think make it really exciting and would put California in the position of being a leader in community solar rather than sort of lag behind is one, the fact that each of these projects would need to be paired with significant energy storage. So probably paired with a four hour battery of an equal size or greater magnitude to the size of the solar system. Each project would also serve 51% at minimum low to moderate income residents in California, which is huge. And we can get into the detail on that more as well. And then in addition to that, it could create, because the program is based on what California has designed as like the true compensation and true value of, you know, each exported kilowatt hour of energy from a distributed energy system, it can grow at a true scale that some other states can't, where they're relying on heavy state incentives to incentivize and make these programs work from an economic standpoint and a baseline standpoint. So yeah, unprecedented opportunity in California, depending on how the proceeding completes and the PUC's proposed decision, you know, we could have no new community solar program in California. But like I said, I think the opportunity that's been created and has been fought tirelessly for by this coalition of people and advocates in California has made an incredibly rock solid case to the PUC for why this is needed and this is needed now. And it's really exciting. Yeah, it definitely is really exciting. As you know, like we develop projects that renew energy and we're one of the markets that we're looking at is California. I think, you know, the two other reasons why I'm excited about it too is it's an uncapped market. Mm -hmm. I think like it's potentially could be Obviously, this is all up to, could change, right? It's potentially seven gigawatts of community solar. Obviously, there's still seems like a long way to go before there's an approved program, but maybe not. I don't know. Um, I think also, too, you know, developing a lot in New York, Dieter has been a concept. Uh, it's the value of distributed energy resources. I think try to figure out like the value of distributed energy and California's, mm-hmm. you know, doing it in their own way as well. So that's also, I think, 
good as well because if you're comfortable with Vitor, which took a while for both developers and the investment community to get comfortable with, that'll be easier going forward just because like New York Community Solar is such a big community solar market. So a lot of developers and investors are comfortable with that. And hopefully, you know, that will help too with, I think it's called VBT. I could be wrong on the concept. MVBT. Oh, yes. Yeah, <laughs> but very close. You got three out of the four. NVBT is the acronym for the new program that's been proposed and has the broadest support behind it in the proceeding. And exactly like you said, the compensation for projects that would be participate in the NVBT program, which stands for the net value billing tariff which is not a very exciting name, but more of a technical <laughs> one, I think. That compensation would be based on, just like Vitor, a series of components of value assigned to the energy produced by distributed energy resources, which is great. And to your point, New York is, I think many would say, the strongest community solar market we have in place, you know, maybe closely tailed by Minnesota and Illinois and Massachusetts, but the longevity of the New York market and the impact and the scale they've created, if California could emulate that, or to your point, go way beyond it with the scope that they're talking about would be incredible. Yeah. And I think as we talked before in the pre-interview, like storage is such an important thing for solar, Well, it's going to be important in all 50 states, but specifically in California with so many distributed energy resources online and things like the duck curve, and it'll help mitigate, you know, too much generation coming online during peak times and smooth out the production or smooth out the use of renewable energy. So that is huge. It's interesting because we talked about New York and do you think the New York community solar market is saturated? Like it's been pretty big for the past four or five years. Obviously, the governor has very high goals for the state. But from an infrastructure perspective, like basically distance from three-phase power, the amount of projects that are in the queue, is New York still a great opportunity as it was before? Or I don't know, I'm curious to get your thoughts on the New York community solar market, because this is something that I think about all the time. Yeah. And to your point about, I've been in community solar for a long time and being at Solstice which is, to your point, a wonderful women-led community solar customer acquisition and management provider that was independent and then, you know, recently had a successful exit and was acquired by MyPower, who's also an investor in Forefront Power. And the first projects I ever worked on for them were in New York and in the legacy program. So I don't know if you remember sure. the days of like phase the one now. The legacy is simple. <laughs> yes. It was before Viter. So it was exactly the full retail rate. Which was so simple. To, yes. I remember when the first order came out for Viter and it was like 289 pages. And I read it like 10 to 15 times because clients were hiring me because they couldn't understand it. But yeah, no, that was like a great time if you had projects because it was very mm-hmm. easy, right? From a financing perspective and customer acquisition perspective, right? To like, what's the value, right? Yeah. And so, I think Nicerta in York creating the beginning. Yes. A hundred percent. No, 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 no. I didn't mean to interrupt you. But yeah, I mean, to your point, I mean, Nicerta really, like, in my understanding, created this concept of really trying to value distributed energy resources. And I think, you know, there's so many reasons why it's a really exciting time to be working in energy and specifically distributed energy and also specifically community solar, but we've never had this kind of power generation at this scale on the US energy grid, right? I mean, we've always had centralized 
power plants and that sort of system. And so this is truly an unprecedented moment. And it makes sense that people didn't know how to assign value differently to a distributed energy resource versus, you know, a wholesale sort of large power plant located very far from load. And there's a lot of studies that have been coming out. And I think we're also starting to see like the real impacts of some of this development of distributed energy resources at scale in areas like New England, there was just a, a study and an announcement made showing that because of the adoption of distributed energy resources and rooftop solar and community solar projects, they're actually going to be able to shut down a peaker plant in Boston because that load and, you know, sort of the reduced shift in demand has enabled them to do that. And it's just so exciting. But I really do think we're still, you know, even 10, 15 years in a bit on the forefront of understanding really how to value those projects and the energy produced by them, but we know that they have so much value, right? And in a way that centralized power is so important, but it's just not the same. And you need an above, all of the above combination of both to really create a great functioning renewable energy majority electric grid. Yeah, definitely. It is exciting times. You're right. It's so early. If we really think about it, I think we've been so ingrained in working in it that we don't realize like how that's pretty monumental like how much distributed resources have come online in like states like massachusetts new york and provide a great point like part of what they're trying to do with veter was like locational system relief value Mm -hmm. demand reduction value right they're parts of the grid where you need more distributed resources the infrastructure of the u.s electrical grid is getting you know, pretty old. And this is a way of creating reliability by having distributed generation in places that take a lot of load. New York, through this meter calculation or value distributed energy resources, is trying to quantify that. So that's why, like, obviously the meter rate is very high in like Con Ed service story, which basically services Manhattan and the five boroughs compared to like upstate New York in Buffalo, yeah. where the meter rate might be like 10 to 11 cents or 8 cents versus Con Ed, which is like 22 cents. But obviously there's challenges of developing community solar in cities versus like a big solar field on rooftops. And so that's pretty interesting that you mentioned that because that's such a huge thing going forward. And we're still very early in this whole thing. And right now only really 23 states have community solar. And there's only a few that are like, have a huge amount of community solar online. But I know in the next five to 10 years that that's going to be totally different. So Yeah. And I apologize because I 100% did not answer your question on where, where New York is going and whether that market oh, um, is going to be able to continue to expand. And I guess to give a very succinct answer to that question, I still believe in the New York community solar market. I mean, I think to everything we just spoke about, they were pioneers in building market that really worked for their state and could grow at that scale that we were talking about earlier. And it's a wonderful example to look at for how other states maybe could do the same and accomplish the same goals. I do think though, similar to California, you know, New York's energy needs are changing. And I think they want to see more distributed generation, but they want to see that paired just like in California with a lot of energy storage, right? And New York is getting to a similar point where that's needed for their grid. And I think we're going to see a big shift to more standalone storage, more solar and storage paired together in New York, you know, would be my prediction. And then I think New York still has to figure out how to balance trying to drop incentive levels for solar projects with incentivizing projects that work for the current situation that they're in. To your point about interconnection queues being extremely congested 
grid and the typical, you know, perfect spots for greenfield solar development largely being taken up by, you know, the growth that they've already seen in community solar, but their declining incentives don't necessarily create opportunities for rooftop installations or landfill or carports in a way that maybe would actually like really serve the energy needs that they have today and solve some of the siting issues that people are experiencing. Yeah, that's a key point. Like basically the type of solar installation and the state level incentive, New York has a rebate program. And I think sometimes they're more aggressive in cutting. There's basically a capacity that has to hit for the incentive and it goes lower. But the challenge is that the economics might not reflect what's currently happening. And I think incentives are constantly changing within the federal level when you talk about like the Inflation Reduction Act and potentially it could offset some of these things. So that's really interesting to talk about that. You know, you talked about the Midwest a little bit. Obviously, Minnesota was one of the first big community solar markets, Illinois and Michigan. People are talking also about Wisconsin. Can you talk about what's happening with community solar in the Midwest markets? Yes. And, Ohio, and I will try to be... Ohio is considered part of the Midwest, right? Yes, or is it 100%. Or part of PGM or... <laughs> Uh, it's still part of PJM, but I think that we could squarely safely call Ohio part of the Midwest. I don't yeah. think they would like to be lumped in with the Mid-Atlantic, although I can't speak for Ohioans. <laughs> for sure. I will try to be more succinct on this. But yeah, I think the Midwest is an incredible, like having an incredible moment around the conversation around community solar. You have states, to your point, like Illinois and Minnesota, that have had community solar programs since 2016, 2013, that are now finding ways to expand those community solar programs and find ways for them to really work for, you know, again, similar to the New York story, similar to the California story, changing needs in their states. So Minnesota in particular, they just expanded, again, oldest community solar program in the country has been around since 2013. They're the founders, the grandfather of community solar, so to speak, and they just expanded their program. Even after a decade, they're still seeing opportunity and want to continue to invest in in this specific type of solar. And they made a couple key changes to the program through that expansion that was legislatively enacted earlier this year. That's going to enable bigger projects that serve low-income customers, which you know is a theme we're hearing in so many of these markets, mm-hmm. and projects that can locate it a little bit further from where their subscribers are. So Minnesota used to require you to only subscribe customers from a county or adjacent counties to where your project was located, and they changed that rule, mostly to enable, I think, urban, you know, more urban, low-income mm-hmm. customers to subscribe to projects that are located in some of the more rural areas. So that's super exciting. And then Michigan, Wisconsin, and Ohio all have community solar legislation that's been introduced and is making progress through the various state governments at this moment. Michigan, there's a couple of different potential paths we could see community solar getting enacted in Michigan. Michigan right now is going through a massive effort to try to expand their renewable portfolio standard and their clean energy targets. They're also trying to introduce a few other clean energy legislations. And so we could see community solar get established through that larger clean energy effort. Or there's standalone legislation that would create a community solar program that could progress. And what's been cool to see in Michigan and kind of, you know, looking now to Wisconsin and Ohio is it's not just Democrats that believe in community solar. We are increasingly seeing, you know, more conservative 
legislators see community solar as a really, really important, you know, renewable energy and energy solution in general because of the unique benefits that it provides. So in Wisconsin, the legislation that's been introduced is entirely Republican led, which is, I think is super cool. And in my work, I get to spend time speaking to some of these legislators and hear why they believe in community solar. And it's a lot of the same reasons that people on the other side of the aisle believe in community solar. But I think because of the unique benefits that this specific asset class and type of solar development provides, it really does touch, you know, the interests and the goals of, you know, both parties, which I think is pretty unique in today's energy policy. Yeah, for sure. I definitely agree. Can you talk about like some of the benefits that politicians see both sides? Now we're seeing, as you mentioned, like a lot of Republican states are incorporating solar taking the initiative. Like, why do you think specifically like community solar is not a bipartisan debate, but a way of creating opportunity? Can you go into that? Yeah, of course. A little bit about it, but I think it would be great if you could go into more detail. Yeah, I think what I'm hearing from a lot of these, you know, the Republican sponsors of some of these, you know, new community solar legislation, and also just generally supporters and the people who are making the decisions on whether these bills should progress or not, is that they see community solar, you know, I think first and foremost, as empowering choice in energy, both for businesses and for, you know, households and homes. That is really the key thing that community solar enables that a lot of other solar, you know, energy development doesn't do is giving you a choice on where your energy is coming from and being able to also make a choice on that being local and being proximal to you. And, you know, community solar doesn't exist without those subscribers making that decision. And, you know, in exchange, they also get to benefit through the savings provided by community solar. So I think choice and empowerment is huge. I think the other thing that both sides of the aisle see is what we talked about, reliability through distributed generation, you know, not only just the disbursement of energy throughout the state that helps make the grid more reliable in the event that one source of power goes down, right? If you have hundreds of five megawatt systems across the energy grid, it just makes you that much more resilient. But on top of that, you know, and we can talk about the IRA too, but I think one of the really exciting things is the private investment that comes with community solar development. And the, you know, this happens on utility scale too, but in community solar, because these projects are interconnected at the distribution grid, before you can interconnect, you're paying for upgrades to the system that you're interconnecting to, which just not only enables power to be produced and you know enter the grid at that specific point, but it also upgrades the infrastructure mm-hmm. while that is happening. And one key thing the IRA did that can bring investment into these states in a real and expanded way, it made interconnection costs ITC eligible for projects only of distributed generation scale, right? So five megawatts AC and smaller. And that's a humongous opportunity that we're seeing right now. Other things that excite people about community solar are like, you know, competition, you know, sort of the scale that that can, and the benefits that can be provided by, again, third party developers coming in, like me, like Fieldworks Power, right? 
we're taking the risk. We're spending the money to get these projects established once there's a right legislative foundation to allow our investors and our boards respectively to allow us to invest that kind of money in these states, which is, you know, millions of dollars across the projects that we're developing. So those are some of the three things that I hear often, but everyone's got a different story. And I think, you know, I guess I lied. One other element I think that's really important that's coming out about community solar is just that, the community aspect of it. The communities get a say in how those projects come about, how they're cited, which often is a contrast to decisions around placement for utility scale solar projects, because often those are approved at the state level versus in community solar you know, usually that scale of project is approved by the local authority having jurisdiction or permitting authority. And I think people, especially more conservative legislators who really believe in, to the point earlier about choice, people having a say in what's going into their community and community solar provides that. Yeah, definitely. I think that freedom of choice of where you're getting power, definitely like it's true. What you said as far as why politicians are focused on community solar, you also mentioned before like low moderate income. Mm -hmm. Like this is a way of them having access to solar energy usually was perceived the rich with a certain credit score, you know, 650 or 700 or above. This really gives access to low moderate income communities with the discount to what they're currently paying usually. And then as well, like workforce engagement and then jobs, right? Because this creates a lot of jobs that really can't be outsourced to other countries. It's done within that state or you might have to bring some people obviously out of state if there's not the necessary experience. And then interesting point as well that you mentioned was with the IRA, like getting the investment tax credit for interconnection, like usually from these community solar projects, it could range from what, like 150 to 450,000 maybe. So the interconnection cost is a huge part of it. Now you're able to use the investment tax credit. You also mentioned storage and standalone combined solar and storage. Now the ITC, you're able to uh, use the investment tax credit for storage, which is huge. Can you talk more about like the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, and some of the benefits? Like we're kind of talking about them now, but I think, you know, for community solar, there are some exciting aspects of it as well outside of, you know, the things that we spoke about. Yeah, I would love to. And, you know, I think it's very safe to say that John and I would not have been in the position to start Fieldworks Power without the Inflation Reduction Act. It created so much opportunity for, you know, the solar industry as a whole, but really specifically community solar and distributed generation in a way that made us sort of encouraged us to finally take the leap into entrepreneurship and start on our own. And I think I'm sure, and I know a bunch of people have already spoken about this on the podcast, but it bears repeating. I mean, the long-term stability and understanding that investment tax credit will be there for a decade is enormous and foundational first and foremost. And I think I already mentioned interconnection costs being ITC eligible. I guess to put a finer point on that, the way I think about what that allows is it just hugely increases the possible world of projects that can get built, right? Because as to your point about New York, right, more and more projects are entering onto the grid and certain areas of the grid are now at capacity. Interconnection costs are getting higher and higher. I mean, you mentioned 100000 to $450,000. I'm hearing a million, a million and a half for a five megawatt project, not everywhere, but in certain situations. And prior to the Inflation Reduction Act, that project would be dead in the water. 
right? But now, you know, you can afford much more and states and local communities are benefiting from that, right? Because we can afford to personally pay for those upgrades and make those projects a reality, which I think is just cannot be understated how impactful that is. Two other things I'm really personally excited about with the Inflation Reduction Act. I know you and I have talked about this a lot too, Benoit. The Low Income Communities Bonus Credit Program, which I know is a mouthful, but the really cool thing about this is it provides a couple of different opportunities to receive an adder to the investment tax credit that a community solar project receives. Again, this is specifically reserved for DG scale projects. So either, you know, up to community scale, like up to five megawatts, AC of solar or solar plus storage or rooftop systems that serve low income customers specifically and provide them with real meaningful savings and discounts and electric bill relief, right? Targeting 20% savings on their bills. And it's going to prioritize projects that are built and owned and operated by new market entrants like Fieldworks Power, right? Or people that may otherwise suffer from some constraints in how they're trying to compete with some of the incumbent developers. And it's also trying to specifically incentivize projects that are built in low-income communities, delivering those jobs to the people that need it most and the opportunity and the value associated with the investment that these projects bring. So I think that is just incredibly exciting. And again, talking about the universe of projects that can now be built and pencil, having that 20% adder for a community solar project just really opens up the opportunities and the types of projects that are going to be created by the people and the projects that earn that 20% adder. So that's really exciting. And then one other thing I'm really excited about that came through the Inflation Reduction Act as well is something called the Solar for All grant program, which is a $7 billion grant program that's overseen and administered by the EPA that is going to help states stand up community solar programs that specifically, again, serve those low-income customers that need it the most and really are who community solar is perfectly designed to serve. So I think through all of those opportunities, I mean, really, when I talk about an unprecedented moment in our industry, I still can't believe sometimes when I wake up that like, we're here after starting community solar a bunch of years ago. And it was like, everyone I told was like, what are you talking about? Like, this doesn't make any sense. (laughs) What is community solar? It's an incredibly exciting moment. And I think we are going to see so much expansion in the community solar program as a result of this. This episode of the Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Podcast Laundry, the podcast concierge service that I use to make sure that my listeners hear the best quality show. They do the dirty work of podcasting for me. Yes, graphics, quotes, show notes, master editing, and much more. All I have to do is record. So if you're a busy podcaster like me with an engaged audience and want to free up time to do more of what you'd love to do, like going to the gym or spending time with loved ones, go to podcastlaundry.com to schedule your consultation or call 347 8273. That's podcastlaundry.com or 347-871-8273. Thank you. Definitely. It's amazing. And you did a great job of explaining like the added benefits and how like basically projects now pencil with the Inflation Reduction Act, the focus on energy communities, right? And jobs and things like that. So I appreciate it. For me, like being in the solar industry now for I can't believe like 15 years. Like for me to see all this, everything's happening a lot faster than I could have imagined, you know, back then in 2008 is like just extremely amazing to see. And 
I'm excited about the future. And right now, like obviously the US, I believe, has the best renewable energy market in the world. And there's so much opportunity through this inflation reduction act. So it's exciting time for everyone in the industry. And I know like we're all kind of want to move quickly through it. It's been challenging because you know the inflation reduction act, it's now been approved for a year, but it's been taking yeah. a long time to you know, come up with the rules and that takes time. And then once all the rules are out, then it takes the development community, the financiers, the state legislature time to understand it. So, but it's an exciting time. I know like a lot of projects have been kind of like in this sort of, I don't know how you determine it, but like hiatus kind of waiting, yeah. you know, to understand like these new incentives because it create opportunity or it could create higher margin projects or help pencil projects that were in penciling before. So it is a really exciting time for sure. And I think next year, especially like the first or second quarter of 2024, I think we'll see a lot more movement on a lot of things pretty quickly. Yeah, I totally agree. And yes, like the adjustment period has been, I think you haven't seen as much growth in the past two years in community solar as you otherwise would have because of the expectations around the Inflation Reduction Act and then waiting for guidance on some of these programs and getting them stood up. But A, I think it's a small price to pay for the opportunity. And I know the people over at the DOE and EPA are working their tails off trying to get this program stood up in Treasury, which we're all grateful for. And I think to your point about some of the complication and like the adjustment time, like, yes, the solar development community will have to adapt. But if we could figure out Vitor, your point, like we can figure this out. For sure. Vita was so complicated. And it's, I thought I would never understand it, but I became an expert. So many people were reaching out to me, but it took like hours and hours of reading and talking to different state officials in New York to understand it. And I've also been part of the like private sector that's been providing feedback to the Department of Energy on some of the adders that you've been talking about. So it's been great to be part of that process. And I'm learning a lot from that as well. Can you talk about, Sarah, like, how did you get interested in solar? I mean, it looks like most of your career is in solar and community solar, which is, I think, pretty rare, but becoming more common as the industry matures. It's still, you know, I think in the infancy, but how did that come about? Yeah, it's a really good question. I'm a nerd if that didn't already come through with how much I'm talking about, you know, all these state programs and policies (laughs) and how excited I am by the Inflation Reduction Act. But I studied earth sciences, specifically geology in school. I really enjoyed it. And I always knew that I wanted to go into something that would be part of benefiting the environment and combating climate change. Like that was sort of my primary drive and figuring out where to take my career, I kind of I guess, sort of fell into solar, really. I actually had an internship, a company formerly known as Enernoc that got bought by NLX. So I like dipped my toe into demand response. That really helped me see the impact that business could have on energy markets and, you know, the possibilities of where we could go as a country in terms of how much clean energy could be put on the grid or adapt the current way we use energy and the scale and pace at which change could happen. I took a little bit of a detour in my career based on the recommendation of a mentor and participated in a management training program at a large industrial supplies Mm -hmm. company, actually. So I dipped out of clean energy for a little bit, but got a really wonderful foundational operational experience through that. By the time I left, I was managing a warehouse 
on my own with a team of 30 people, which is just experience that I think I've carried with me through every opportunity I've had since then. And then as soon as I finished that program, got my MBA while I was there as well at the University of Chicago. And as soon as both of those things were finished, I was ready to jump back into clean energy. And in looking at all the opportunities available at the time, community solar was by far the most exciting to me. A, you know, joining Solstice, startup company founded by two women, women of color, was incredible. And the work that they were doing, they were really at the forefront of trying to make sure that community solar did truly serve the people that needed it most, which was the low to moderate in community. So I learned so much working there. I met so many incredible developers who are also working on building these community solar projects. And eventually that's where I decided to take my career next was at, like I mentioned before, DSD Renewables, helping to build out their community solar program. So sort of to answer your question, fell into solar, fell into community solar, but I'm so happy I'm here because I think solar is, we need all of the above, like I said before, but I think solar is proving to be the foundation of the renewable energy transition and, you know, feel very lucky to be part of that industry and to have joined it when I did. Yeah, definitely. That's pretty amazing. And like Solstice, I don't know if you know Sundia, who's the co-founder. We're from the same town in New Jersey. It's a small little world. I saw actually Sunday in the Solstice team at RE Plus and there's a lot of excitement with the 43,000 people who attended the conference and a lot of people were obviously talking about the opportunity with community solar. I think a lot of excitement in the conference was due to the Inflation Reduction Act and the opportunity that it was going to have. Last year in Anaheim was where I first met Sarah in person. That was, I think, 28,000 people. So it's amazing, 15,000 more people attending in Las Vegas and everyone's excited about what's happening in the industry. And I believe a great time to start a company. The Solar Maverick podcast is about solar and entrepreneurship. You talked about how, John, and you thought that this would be a great time to start Fieldworks Energy. I know it's only been a few months. What advice would you give to people who are interested in potentially starting their own company? And what have you learned as well from the experience? Because it's a lot different from working, you know, for a company, but you've yeah. worked for startups as well. So, you know, you've seen that too. So yeah, I feel like working for startups or companies that were, you know, very much in a growth phase, which, you know, Solstice was a startup. And I would also put DSD almost in the startup camp, the position that they were in the growth that they were experiencing. That really helped me get comfortable with what it was like to be part of building something from the ground up. I mean, I was never for in both of those companies, I wasn't a founder. So I didn't have that very, very early stage experience. But I think I got enough of a taste of it to realize that that was something that I really enjoyed doing and love to be part of that sort of build phase of companies. In terms of advice, despite loving working at startups and loving being part of that, I never truly believed that I would be in the position that I'm in now, starting a company, raising money and getting that off the ground. And I think the advice that I would give people is like, don't sell yourself short. If the opportunity comes to you and you feel ready and you feel like that's something you might enjoy doing, you got to take it. Because I think I heard someone else say this once. I wish I could remember who to attribute it to. I think it's known that those doors don't open themselves to you very often. There are those people who are consummate entrepreneurs who make that reality happen. But I think for most of us, if you listen to the stories of entrepreneurs, the opportunity sort of comes 
at a certain point of time and you have to be ready to take it. And I think like we talked about the excitement around Community Solar, the Inflation Reduction Act, the opportunity to do this now, I was probably never going to have another better time to start Fieldworks Power than I did then. And on the advice of mentors and people that I trusted and having a great co-founder beside me, it felt like the right time to take that leap. And I'm super glad that I did. I feel like I've already grown, you know, years worth in the past three months. <laughs> Most of it's been very fun. Some of it's been challenging. I'm super grateful that I did take the leap for better or for worse, whatever, you know, I hope we'll be very successful, but whatever happens. Yeah, definitely. Unless you try, you don't know, you never want to live life with regret. And I think like you're right, it's a perfect time to start it. I think, you know, feels worth energy. There's a lot of potential and excitement and that's awesome. Like from a time and perspective to do it. And I think I'm excited to see what the future is for you and John going forward. And it's interesting because you mentioned something like entrepreneurship forces you to become a better person actually in certain ways, because how do I explain this the right way? The better you get as a person in all different facets, the better entrepreneur you are. So it's like the ultimate self-improvement and definitely like starting a company, especially in the first few months and especially the first two or three years. It's a lot that's happening all at the same time. You're trying to understand everything. And then also it's controlling your emotions and controlling mm -hmm. your efforts and being focused. So for sure, that's awesome. Yeah, thanks. I think it's a great point. I think you said it better than I did, but there's no way to not grow to your point, become a better person and challenge yourself and push yourself when you're starting a company because it's just so challenging for every aspect of your life. But I think those are the moments of the greatest growth and potential in your life. And it's great. Yeah. And then like, what's the worst that could happen? I mean, now I've been in my own business now for 11 years. So I would think like, hey, I wouldn't think about it. But the worst case scenario is like, I would have to get a job and it's pretty easy to get a job in renewable energy now because there's so much opportunity. You're not really taking that big of a risk at the end of the day, but that's just how the way I rationalized it in my mind. But I never wanted to think about that because I never wanted to let up on what my true goal was, which was to have a successful business. But it's always good to mentally like, you know, know like, hey, worst case scenario, I'm not going to be like, you know, it's not going to be a very difficult financial time because I could always get another job. So that's pretty interesting. 100%. I think you have to balance the hunger. And I don't think most people take the leap unless they have a lot of ambition, you know, and excitement about, and about confidence, what could right, be. Too. And confidence. Ambition and confidence is part of it, right? Confidence could be considered ambition, right? Because you can't be ambitious without being confident, right? Yes, so. yes, 100%. But I think, especially for a lot of women that I've met and women founders, there's that voice in the back of your head. It can be for everyone too. But I think societally, like a lot of times we have this, oh, you shouldn't do that. You know, be careful. Like, don't sure. take that leap. Like imposter syndrome sort of sentiment. Those thoughts creep up in the back of your head and make you afraid. So I think to your point, knowing that you're going to be okay, no matter what happens, but still having that ambition and that belief in yourself to take the jump and give it a shot. Because I also heard recently, again, I should find this article and I can send it to you. But somebody did a study and showed that imposter syndrome can actually, people who have that, it can make you a better, more successful business leader because you never let up. You always have that voice of like, oh, you know, be careful of this possibility or you need to do this to make sure that you'll be more successful. And having that sort of little kernel of 
self-doubt along the way actually can push you to be more successful long-term. So that's part of the reason why I believe, not that every woman has imposter syndrome, but a lot of us do, myself included. And I think that gave me a little bit of heart to read that too, because I think it can make you more successful in the long run. Yeah, I agree with that whole concept on imposter syndrome. And I appreciate you explaining that. I think the higher the goals you have, even if you're not able to accomplish it, it's still going to be more than you probably ever imagined it to be. I remember working, I worked at Tesla Solar City before I started my own company. And I remember someone saying to me, I'm not going to say who it is, but thinking bigger, like stop thinking like the normal person. Yes. Because everything, and this is by the way, from jobs, everything from Apple, like everything we look at in earth was created by a, a human, right? At that time, people were saying, oh, there's not that possibility. But there was that possibility, you know. So, like, I feel very fortunate to work at Tesla and Solar City, and I actually at that point like was working with Lyndon Rive, who's Elon's cousin, who's the CEO of Solar City, and just to see like how they were building companies and how big they were thinking. Like, this is the early stages of SpaceX and Tesla, and to see like where these businesses are today, like now 11, 12 years, it's like blows my mind away, you know. But if he didn't think, or if Elon didn't think that big, which he does, and even thinking a lot bigger than that, that would have never happened. So it's just interesting, you know, because that kind of goes into that imposter syndrome as well. So 100%. Well, I'm grateful to have had conversations with people like you who have gone out and taken that leap and done it to help give me, you know, and listening to all the great Solar Maverick interviews that you've done to help me believe that it could be possible. I could maybe have a shot at doing it too. I don't think, you know, without those voices and all those people who took chances before me in the industry, like, you know, Steph and Sandia at Solstice, I never would have had the courage to do it. So grateful for you all paving the way. I'm grateful for the people before me. And it's exciting to see like people who have been on the podcast or, you know, I've met and they've said that, you know, like listening to the podcast, we've gotten them into solar, help them start a solar company or renewable energy company. So it's really exciting. I mean, how did you find out about the Solar Maverick podcast? I think originally just random, like, you know, I'm a nerd. Like I love listening to podcasts, reading books. I remember when I was first getting back into solar energy, I read Jenny Chase's book, you know, Solar Finance Without the Jargon, I think is the title. Yeah. So I was just always chasing resources to learn from people. You know, that's the best way, I think, to learn things and to set yourself up for a successful future is to listen to people who are potentially smarter than you or who just have more life experience and to learn and glean from that. And so again, have always looked for resources like that. And that's how I found the Solar Maverick podcast, just searching for it. And thankfully it was there. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I believe like I've learned so much from podcasts. I try to learn from people. You know, I think a great concept that you've mentioned a couple of times is mentors. Mm-hmm. I myself have a lot of mentors to help me look at things and, you know, really focus on the goals that I want. So I think that's huge, all that you're doing. And it's easier to learn from other people than do the same mistakes. So listening, obviously, is really important. You know, I've asked you like a lot of questions. Do you have any questions for me? Yeah, I definitely do have a lot of questions for you, but I know we're kind of getting at time. It's all limited to one. But, you know, I think, again, you spoke about the amazing career you've had in the solar industry and how long you've had an opportunity to work in this space. Like what surprised you the most about how the solar industry has progressed from the point that you joined to where we are today? 
I think to me, it's like the constant innovation that's mm-hmm. happening in all aspects of the industry. I mean, just looking at solar panels, I remember when we were buying solar panels at 550 a watt, maybe like the wattage was <laughs> watts and now we're talking about like 650 i don't even know it's hard for me to keep track with the technology and then you know the cost of the panels obviously are now 40 to 50 cents but like racking has improved financing Mm -hmm. bifacial panels even inverter technology just like and the innovation and how quickly projects are getting built. I mean, there was a time where like a 500 kilowatt project was like a huge project back in the day. Now, like that's nothing. And it's just amazing to see how much innovation is happening and so quickly within a very, if you think about it, a short period of time. Now I'm like technically 15 years in renewables, 12 years in solar, actually maybe more than that. Sorry. But now I'm losing track actually of time. But I mean, it's just amazing. And it's going to honestly, the next 10 years, things are going to even happen a lot faster. What I love about the industry is that there's so much innovation, there's so much opportunity, and you have to like be constantly adjusting and adapting compared to like older industries that are not moving as quickly. And by the way, there's going to be a lot of companies that fail during this time. To me, it keeps me nimble. I mean, I've now been in it now for like my own business now for 12 years. Like the goals that we have going forward, especially with the IRA, like it's given me a lot of confidence to take a lot more risk and not necessarily risk, but educated guesses. So I'm really excited actually for the next 10 years. Like it's amazing how much innovations happen now. And even in the community solar markets, like there was a point Mm -hmm. where the financiers were just looking for residential customers to do a 20 year contract, which was crazy. Like I was thought that's never going to happen, especially when it's not on site in like their house or whatever it is. So just amazing. Even if you look community solar, look when Vitor first came out, there was such a huge, like in New York, the community was like, I don't know if we're going to be able to do a project. (laughs) Yeah. We don't understand it. But then how quickly like it moved. So it's exciting. Honestly, the next two years, the next five years, 10 years, that's what gives me a lot of energy just because like I'm going to have to continue to innovate as a person and obviously our industry and then obviously the service offerings that we provide because the companies that are able to provide the most value to their customers at the end of the day are going to be the most successful. So I don't know if that's like kind of a long winding response to your question. No, it's great. I wholeheartedly agree. It's been incredible to see the innovation and thanks to entrepreneurs, thanks to people who took chances, who believed, you know, back in the days to your point of, you know, it being like pulling teeth to get a community solar project financed or subscribed, you know, that's brought us here today and laid the groundwork for the opportunities in front of us. And it's just amazing. And yes, I agree with you. I think in 10 years, I cannot wait to see where things go. It's going to be great. There's no doubt about that, but I have no idea what the future is going to hold. And like, there's so much innovation happening. Like we can't even imagine it. Like if we go back and look 10 years behind, then we'll be like, oh my gosh, like I'd never even thought that these things are going to happen and so quickly. So it's a really exciting time. This has been a great podcast interview, Sarah. If our listeners who we call Maverick, Mavericks and you're a solar Maverick, obviously innovating the industry, like what's the best way for them to learn about your company? And if they wanted to get in contact with you, what's the best way for them to do that? 
Yeah. So we do have a website. It's fieldworkspower.com and we can probably link it in the show notes. That's a great way to reach out. We've got a message box on the site and um, you can learn a little bit more about what we're doing and how we're setting ourselves up in this space. But you can also reach out to me on LinkedIn or you can email me. My email is sarah at fieldworkspower.com and we can also you know link that for listeners maybe. But yeah, I would love to hear from anybody innovating in the community solar space, female entrepreneurs, people who, you know, old friends from the industry who might be listening listening to this podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out. And thank you, Benoit, for the opportunity. This has been a wonderful conversation, like all of our conversations are, but super fun to be here on the podcast. Yeah, definitely. That's been an amazing interview. I feel like every time we meet, it always goes over time. I appreciate you sharing your knowledge and your story because I think it's important. And it gives, you're creating a legacy in itself because there are people who are going to listen and really feel a connection to your story and go out on their own or go into the solar industry because of listening to this interview. And I know like you're really busy. So I appreciate you making this time today. We'll obviously have all your contact information in the notes of the podcast. Thank you again, Sarah, and keep up the good work. I'm excited about what you're doing at Fieldworks. And I can't wait to like re-interview you in three to five years to see like the progress of the company and how you and John are doing. Thanks, Benoit, again, so much. It's been really great to be here. Anytime. Thank you again, Sarah. Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at reneuenergy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangin and Kevin Y. Brown. Solar Maverick.